0: there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 3, The Peace, Part 2. Today, we'll be putting a bow on the Paris Peace Conference ending World War I. Last week, we discussed the top issues being addressed in the Paris Peace Conference. But as the conference dragged on, other issues near and dear to countries outside the Big Three were being overlooked. This understandably started to worry the smaller powers, who believed they were being left in the cold. One of the nations with the most to lose when compared to what they had been promised was Italy. In the 1915 Treaty of London, they had been promised a package of territories in Europe, and a vague promise of land in Africa and Asia. So far, they had only been assured South Tyrol and the small Istrian peninsula, both small mountainous areas on their northeast frontier. Needless to say, the the Italians did not think it worth the over 600,000 soldiers they sacrificed. Wilson, of course, was the sticking point. He hadn't promised the Italians squat, and wasn't inclined to turn over Slovenes and Croatians on the basis of secret treaties. The British and French were also prepared to turn on their weaker partner, seeing as how all the land in the Middle East and Africa was in their hands already. The Italians looked like they were only going to get some alpine mountains and a lovely new port in the city of Trieste. The Italian public were growing restless, with socialists taking to the streets and threatening Orlando's government, and the nationalists getting restless over a lack of results coming out of Paris. Orlando himself warned darkly of a civil war in Italy if their demands were not met. Wilson, though, was adamant, and on... April 23rd published a public statement urging that the secret treaties the Entente had made with Italy be nullified, and Italy content itself with the region of, of, of South Tyrol and the city of Trieste. This went over like a brick through a window, and Orlando was on a train back to Rome the next day. It appeared that the Germans, due to Paris in five days' time, would be missing a major power in the peace delegation. This dramatic gesture, though, of course, backfired. The big three didn't actually need the Italians to impose peace, and Italy itself owed the U.S. and U.K. gigantic sums of money. They simply carried on as before and made every indication that they would just shut Italy out of the peace conference entirely, or come collecting on the war debts at an inconvenient time. Or both. By May 5th, Orlando and the Italians were back in Paris. By this point, though, the others were through humoring them and refused to budge on terms. The Italians would still argue and fight, but had to do so in full, no- full knowledge their arguments fell on unsympathetic ears, that their own pretensions to being a world leader ran through with their partners. The last notable crisis to occur during the peace conference was one I bemoaned back in the intro episode. Just like I hadn't mentioned Italy a lot, I also haven't mentioned Japan a whole lot. This is for largely the same reason. Japanese interests were much more limited than the Big Three. But there was one request they made that created an incident, one that would be remembered down the road. The Japanese were a newer great power in 1919, but their government believed the time had come to finally be treated as equals. In February, they requested a clause be inserted into the League of Nations covenant, enshrining the idea that no nation should discriminate against another nation's people on the basis of race. The Japanese felt this necessary as their nationals had been discriminated against in the US, Canada, and Australia. Keep in mind that this podcast is going to eventually get to a whole lot of ethnic cleansing, so let me get this point out in the open. People were really, really racist even when compared to today. The Japanese proposals set off alarm bells among the Westerners. Morally and legalistically, the Japanese argument was pretty airtight. There wasn't any grounds for discrimination when taking into account the liberal country's high-minded rhetoric and the very ideals of the conference and proposed League of Nations but the Japanese were dealing with nations whose very power was rooted in the idea of white supremacy. Wilson could kiss the support of the West Coast goodbye if he supported the Japanese and actually made California treat its Asian populations like people. And then it would, of course, undermine the continued oppression of the African-American population, which meant the whole of white America would be against it. The British were not any better off. If they committed to the clause, the Indian separatists would have a field day. They might have still gone along with it for the sake of their Japanese alliance were it not for a racist force even greater than the Americans among the Westerners, the Australians. Prime Minister Hughes bluntly and loudly told off the Japanese delegation and in no uncertain terms asserted that Australia would be a purely white country. The Japanese took the rebuke calmly and pressed their case into the early spring. Finally, in mid-April, a group of delegates was assembled to take a vote. Embarrassingly for the U.S. and U.K., the Japanese carried that vote. Wilson, however, simply stated that due to the strong opposition voiced to the clause, that it would not be incorporated. He had pulled an audible and simply dared anyone to try and stop him. None of the Europeans cared to press the matter, so it was simply dropped. When that treatment was published in the Japanese press, it provided a stark lesson on how the rest of the world still saw them. They had developed their economy, their system of education, their political culture, and their military to join the larger community of nations as equals. And this high-handed treatment was their reward. The humiliation of Japanese immigrants abroad would continue, and the Japanese at home would be given constant reminders that their country was considered beneath the whites. A seed was planted here, one that could have easily been avoided, that grew into something terrible indeed. I will briefly mention that while the Japanese might sound altruistic in its quest for racial equality, that goal was mostly for Japanese vis-a-vis the West for Japan's immediate neighbors, they were still as imperialistic as ever. In addition to the Central Pacific Islands, Japan had also seized control of German operations on the mainland of China, specifically in the modern-day port of Qingdao. The city was a concession to Germany, meaning that they had a free economic and administrative hand in its development. This will be an arrangement I will describe in greater detail when introducing China, and to think of it as something of a German colony would not be inaccurate. The Germans even set up a brewing company there, the Tsingtao Brewing Company, which to this day still produces the same German-style lager. Anyway, the Japanese naturally wanted the city, as well as the Germans' commercial rights to the surrounding province. The Chinese, who had entered the war on the Entente side late in the war, but it had sent huge numbers of workers to Europe to help ease manpower shortages, obviously wanted their land back. In this, the Chinese faced the same story you'll be hearing over and over again before long. At this point in time, they were weak and the Japanese were strong. The Chinese ably pled their case to the Supreme Council again and again, but the Japanese leaned on their British allies who, in turn, leaned on the other powers. This was a period of endemic instability in China, and ultimately, the Supreme Council used that fact to console itself when they compromised their principles and hand over an entirely Chinese region into the clutches of the Japanese. It wasn't an official annexation, and the Japanese didn't have free reign over their prize, but they were seen as interlopers by the Chinese who very much so did not want them there. Once again, the major powers had compromised themselves and the peace they were hoping to create, this time by placating an ambitious ally. And the last big topic I'll cover regarding establishing the peace will be the Near and Middle East. This entire podcast is devoted to how and why the interwar peace failed, and the damage that ensued from that failure. It will stop at the end of World War II. It was in the fiasco of making a peace out of the carnage of the old Ottoman Empire, though, that we in the modern day are still living with the consequences of the mistakes of this era. The unresolved grudges, the frustrated hopes, the artificial divisions that uh, rack these regions to this day got their start here. When ISIS uh, repudiated the international order in the Middle East, they specifically called out the Sykes-Picot Treaty, That piece of trivia hails from the depths of World War I, when the British and French made a prototype agreement outlining their power-sharing in the Middle East. Virtually nobody in the West would have heard of the treaty, much less the details or impact it had. A bunch of militant death cultists, though? They knew. But Sexpico was more an agreement in principle than anything binding. The official details still had to be sorted out. And that's exactly where the competitive instincts between the British and French flared up all over again. As already discussed, the Arab portions of the Ottoman Empire were considered mostly civilized, but did not yet have the experience in self-government needed to stand alone. The initial division had gifted France Syria, Lebanon, and northern Iraq. The British would take southern Iraq, Jordan, and Palestine. This division was agreed to back when the Russian Empire was still a partner and was expected to snag what is now Eastern Turkey. The idea had been to have France act as a buffer between the Russians and the British, who spent the better part of the last century as imperial rivals. Then the Russian Empire went away, and the British found it was their armies occupying the Middle East, with nary a Frenchman in sight. All of a sudden, all those wartime agreements started seeming a little flimsy. The British couldn't just cut the French out completely, though. They needed some kind of pretext. Luckily, one showed up in Paris in the form of Faisal. Now, Prince Faisal was an Arab nationalist and a son of the Grand Sharif of Mecca, Hussein bin Ali, who had declared himself King of Arabia during World War I. Faisal had participated in the Arab revolt against the Turks, and was made famous by the accounts of one T.E. Lawrence, he of Arabia, Regardless of the fact or fiction of those accounts, Faisal was the face of the Arab nationalist movement for the Entente. He desired nothing less than all of the Arab territories, or at least the formerly Ottoman ones, be organized under his rule. The British were willing to hear him out, as they believed any Arab state under him they could influence and bring under their thumb. The French perceived this danger, and wanted nothing more than to be rid of him. Faisal eventually indicated that he would be satisfied with ruling Syria, where he, strictly speaking, was already the declared king. The French weren't terribly interested in a British client ruling their mandate for them. Uh, Nobody was really sure what to do, and as a result, the three sides stalled and delayed any decisions. Uh, By May, Faisal had slipped back to Syria, probably realizing there wasn't a whole lot he could accomplish in Paris. Then there was the other major prize among the Arab lands, Iraq. At this point, it's worth noting that there really wasn't an Iraq. There were three provinces based around major cities, Basra in the south, Baghdad in the center, and Mosul in the north. It was Mosul that the British regretted promising away to the French the most, and the reason that should be familiar to modern ears, oil. It was conjectured at the time that there was an ocean of the stuff in the Mosul province, and as we now know all too well, those conjectures were 100% accurate. The British had been running the province since 1918, and the French had been rather quiet about it, preferring to focus on their claims to Syria Lebanon. Clevenceau even offered it up to the British, assuming he would get better terms of the German treaty as a result. The British, though, ignored the gesture and continued giving Clem a hard, a hard time on the German terms. This set Clemenceau so into a rage, so that by May 21st, he accused the British of repaying his generosity with nothing and stealing a colony out from under him, which was kind of true. Ultimately, Clemenceau so dropped claims to Mosul in exchange for an equal share of the extracted oil, which, let's face it, was the only reason he was interested in the first place. The British would eventually fuse the three provinces together, and Faisal would reemerge a time or two again in our narrative to claim the area, but that will be more for future episodes. Aside from the Arabic portions of the Ottoman Empire, there was the question of the core Turkish areas in Anatolia. This area corresponds to modern-day Turkey. This was a bit more complex, as there were a lot more claimants to this region. To the west, the Greeks were looking to take over eastern Thrace, that small patch of land that makes up modern-day Turkey's European land, as well as much of the southwestern Anatolian coastline, which at the time still had a significant Greek population left over from the days of antiquity. The British were interested in operating the Bosphorus Straits, or more accurately, making sure nobody else got them. The French wanted to extend their projected influence in Syria into southeastern Anatolia. The Italians, having lost out virtually everywhere else, were eyeing the southern Anatolian coastline because it was there and nobody else wanted it. The last piece was Armenia. They had fallen victim during World War I to a genocide at the hands of the Turks that left over a million people dead, and was a haunting precursor to what was to come. The Armenians themselves welcomed a Western benefactor for the protection they would offer from their murderous overlords. The snag, though, was that the Europeans were hitting their limit on what they could take over, and none of them wanted uh, one of the others to have it. That's when Wilson stepped in to offer the U.S. as Armenia's benefactor. I'm not sure how he imagined he would be able to pitch this to Congress, but Wilson, for a time, took up the cause and committed America to administering the Eastern Quadrant of Turkey, wedged between the Black and Mediterranean Seas. So that was the primary course of the Paris Peace Conference in those critical months from January to May 1919. Eventually, the formal treaties started coming together, with the Germans being first in line. This was destined to be the Versailles Treaty, although at this point, the German Treaty was all it was referred to. I mentioned earlier that the Germans had been so harsh on the Russians when making the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk that it would set an example where if they themselves lost, the Entente would be sure to run a train over them. So let's go over the specs on said train. Condition 1. Germany would have to surrender the province of Alsace-Lorraine, on its western frontier, over to France. Everybody in Germany saw this one coming, as this particular strip of land was the most tangible reason for France to go in against Germany, aside from the two nations just butting heads naturally in general. France would also get to administer the Saarland region, a small but coal-rich bit of land on Germany's border with France. A provision allowed that after a 15-year period set to happen in 1934, the region would vote if it should be restored to Germany or not. Belgium, Denmark, Czechoslovakia, and Lithuania all got small pieces of land in the deal. In the eastern part of Germany, the area around the city of Poznan was given over to the reborn Polish state. And due to Poland wanting a a port, The German city of Danzig was made a self-governing and autonomous city that existed in a customs union with Poland. This provided Poland with a fairly open economic access to the city, specifically access to that all-important dock. Controlled by neither Germany or Poland, it would have its own local government. These changes created an odd geographical circumstance where the German province of eastern Prussia was separated from the rest of Germany by land. Two. Germany was not allowed to merge with Austria. This is kind of a dicey topic today as Austria has definitely gone its separate way from being part of the idea of a larger German nation. For the uninitiated, the idea of a united Germany is relatively new and regional identity in Germany even today is rather strong. When the other German states were coming together to form the German Empire, Austria was tied down with commitments to its own much more multi-ethnic empire in Austria-Hungary. Not wanting to dismember the so-called dual monarchy, the Germans left Austria out while smaller states like Bavaria, Saxony, and Württemberg were merged with Prussia. The Great War created the circumstances where Austria-Hungary ceased to exist, and all of a sudden, Austria no longer had those imperial commitments. Big Germany could finally happen, and almost did. But the second France caught wind that the two territories might merge, they nixed it. They understandably didn't want to take land and people from Germany, only for them to turn around and make up for it elsewhere. However, this was a slightly controversial move as it directly violated one of the core ideas that was supposed to be guiding the entire peace conference, namely that each area should be able to self-determine which nation it belonged to, Poland for Poles, Yugoslavia for South Slavs, and so on. It was one of those pesky 14 points of peace. Austria was linguistically and culturally German, that they were left out of the Second Reich originally was more of a circumstance of politics than than of them not belonging to a larger German nation. So right out the gate here, expediency is trumping stated principles. 3. Germany's military was to be reduced to 100,000 men. This is a reduction from the German Empire's peacetime strength of about 900,000. The real gut punch was forbidding uh, conscription and limiting officer training. This was important because if you are constantly constantly cycling in, training, and then cycling out people, a nation's army can be much larger once mobilized. Uh, Mobilized meaning deploying existing combat troops, calling up civilians for military duty, and in general, putting the nation's productivity towards the war effort. The mobilized German army at the start of the Great War jumped from 900,000 to 4.5 million men in this manner. So now, while Germany couldn't do this anymore, other nations, like France, faced no such restrictions. Added to this was a strict limitation on the German Navy, banning most large ships and all submarines. They were also disallowed tanks or an air force and had restrictions on other equipment. The German military was going to spend most of the 20s and early 30s finding ways to break as many of these rules as they could without getting into trouble. Four. Germany also had to literally pay as well, or at least the idea was agreed to that they would need to pay. The compromise solution to arriving at an exact figure at a scheduled conference two years down the line made it into the final treaty. The term specified, though, that the funds were intended to pay for war damages suffered in the German-occupied parts of France and Belgium. Given that the Germans practiced more than a little bit of scorched earth in their retreat back to the Reich, they could assume that the final accounting was going to sting. 5. Germany also had to agree to give up its colonies. Now, pretty much all of their colonies were of marginal value and never brought the mother country much benefit. I'm only really bringing it up because during the interwar years, Germany would use its absence of colonies and captive markets as a rhetorical device to how they were already suffering enough compared to the major powers. The other reason is that with overseas colonies off the table, Germany started looking a bit closer to home for lands to exploit. 6. The last big one I'll mention is that the treaty established the League of Nations. We've already gone over the introduction to the League concept, but it's worth pointing out that Germany was still barred from membership at the time the treaty was made. They would be on an indefinite international probation, and that being lifted was dependent on their good behavior. It was definitely taken as patronizing and rubbed the Germans the wrong way, given the idealistic nature of the organization. Given the insane euphoria at the time the peace conference first started, it was likely that the Versailles Treaty was always going to be a letdown. Marshal Ferdinand Foch, the supreme commander of the Allied forces in World War I, famously described it as a 20-year truce. The treaty itself took six drama-filled months to get signed off on, as the motley collection of Allied powers jockeyed against each other to secure their demands on a defeated Germany. France, understandably, was out for blood, and it took pretty much everyone in the room to try and get them to moderate their positions just a smidge. All those points and terms I just rattled off? It could have been worse. Germany was a bit miffed at it all, especially Article 231 of the treaty, which stipulated that Germany and the other central powers accept responsibility for the loss of life and damage caused by their invasions. Which, however you want to spin the war guilt thing... Germany invaded in the west, and Austria invaded Serbia. They did start it, and were the aggressors, plain as day. This article was to establish why Germany was being called upon to pay reparations, otherwise it could be seen as just looting a defeated country. Germany, though, did not take this well, and read much farther into it than the victors had intended. They saw it as being assigned full responsibility for a war, causing tens of millions of war deaths. And while future events would prove them capable of that and more, these were still somehow, some someway, more innocent, more innocent times. And their national honor had been stained by this. Which might sound a bit silly given the circumstances and how many other problems there were, But imagine if the United States was asked to accept sole responsibility for the Vietnamese War and the millions of dead soldiers and civilians there. There would have been a national breakdown. And this was just a legalistic clause, not a main term of the treaty. So from the get-go, the document was considered a poison chalice. Germany had been aggrieved to the point of a national panic attack, but not weakened enough in the eyes of the French that they were no longer a threat. I would be remiss without mentioning some of the major changes that uh, brought, that were brought about by the treaty signed by the other defeated powers. The Treaty of Saint-Germain was for Austria. They gave up pretty much all their non-German-speaking land, plus the Sudetenland, land, which we will be hearing about more in the future, and Italy took the south Tyrol on account of never being able to own too many mountains. They're just so picturesque. On one hand, this wasn't as bad as it sounds for the Austrians, because the crazy patchwork of Germans, Italians, Slovenes, Croats, Bosnians, Serbs, Slovaks, Hungarians, Czechs, Poles, Ukrainians, and Romanians just wasn't working out before the war even started. For years before the war, the other major nations of the world were discussing how to handle the inevitable breakup of the Empire and relations between the groups just got more toxic as the combined misery just broke everything apart. There was a problem, though, one that Americans as a young nation probably wouldn't understand terribly well. Austria wasn't really a nation at this point. It was more a geographic term. Sure, they were pretty solidly German within the administrative districts of Austria itself, but as mentioned before, there were Germans in large numbers in the Sudetenland, and also in larger numbers in the more eastern parts of the empire. They saw themselves as the capital region of a vast multi-ethnic enterprise led by their former royal family, the Habsburgs. This had been so for over 600 years at that point, and the transition probably could have been done under better circumstances. The most immediate problem for the new Austrian nation was how to quickly overhaul its economy. For centuries, it could draw resources from a reasonably large swath of territory, but now no more. For example, the new nation was all hills and mountains, and it drew its foodstuffs from Bohemia and Hungary. Now those sources lay across international boundaries. The entire situation kind of showed that despite everyone assuming the dissolution of the Empire as a given, nobody really knew what it was supposed to look like once it was gone. Vienna went from being the capital of a major world power to being a repository of mementos and a tourist spot on Central European tours. The change in status also meant all those civil servants and bureaucrats clustered in the capital were now dangerously superfluous. They were vital to keep the Habsburg Empire going even in the creaky fashion it had fallen into. A rump Austrian state, though, had little use for them. The search for identity, purpose, and even a basic level of stability or prosperity would bedevil the new nation, and that weakness would ultimately leave it at the mercy of its neighbors. The next treaty is a real doozy because whereas Austria took loss of its empire well, Hungary was destined to nurse a bitter grudge that it carries on to this very day. The Treaty of Trianon was the peace treaty for the Hungarian half of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and all told, it matched up with Austria's treaty in terms of land lost. The Hungarians, however, were not a people lacking a distinct national identity, and their idea of the Kingdom of Hungary was very clear-cut. It included Slovakia. Transylvania, the northern half of modern Croatia, and what is today northern Serbia. Each of those regions was dominated by a non-Hungarian ethnic group. Under the 14 points, those regions would become independent or join with the appropriate mother country. But what Wilson didn't anticipate when composing his simple points is that the Balkans is all kinds of messed up, and an ethnic map of these regions has the consistent colorations of a mold growth. It turns out that in most of those places, there was a rather large Hungarian minority. In some of those places, you're looking at up to a third of the inhabitants being Hungarian. It was proposed that instead of assigning land by region, they should break things down into smaller divisions of land, but this was rejected more or less as being too hard. And honestly, statesmen in this period were even less enlightened than they are now, so making the divisions more complicated wasn't a surefire path to making those allotments work. Also, the Romanians really pulled out all the stops at Paris to make sure they got all of Transylvania. Also, there wasn't a stable Hungarian government to really push their case as the treaty was being worked out, given that Hungary was in the grip of a short-lived communist revolution. Also, most everybody who wanted a piece of Hungary's land already had an army on the parts they wanted. The Hungarians really weren't in a position of strength there. So, they lost almost three-quarters of their claimed land and almost a third of their ethnic Hungarian population. I mentioned earlier that the Hungarians were not lacking in national identity. Which is true, going back to the medieval period and the early modern days, the Hungarian Kingdom did hold similar borders to what they had in 1914. So, the Hungarians had a very distinct image as to what their land was, and were doubly aware of how hard the fight had been over hundreds of years to keep it together. So, as for losing the vast majority of it in an instant, they were very mad. If there was anyone who could go tit-for-tat with the Germans in terms of bitterness, it would be the Hungarians. The primary reason why this wasn't more of an immediate problem is that the Treaty of Trianon left the Hungarians in a spot the French very much wished on the Germans, weakened and reduced to the point where they no longer posed a threat. However, like I said, they had a grudge. They weren't soon to let go. And if certain doors were open for them in the future, it was a given that Hungary would be, would have a part to play in the deadly mischief that followed. The last two treaties I'll cover really quick, because they matter a whole lot less. The Treaty of Noeli Circian covered Bulgaria and forced them to give snippets of land over to the Serbs and Greeks. This wasn't actually as bad for them as the Second Balkan War had been in terms of land lost, although I'm sure Serbia was disappointed that they didn't get to incorporate them into the Yugoslav condominium they were setting up. The other is the Treaty of Sevres. This formally partitioned the Ottoman Empire between the British and French in the predominantly Arab areas, and on paper tore what is today modern Turkey apart among the victors and new states uh, based on the various ethnic groups in Anatolia. Then something strange happened, though. The Turkish army rebooted itself. For over three years, the Turks under Mustafa Kemal, the founding father of modern Turkey, fought invading armies and ethnic groups vying for their independence. Most of the great powers had no stomach for occupying Anatolia, and when the Greek army was crushed, there wasn't even any lingering enthusiasm from the minor ones either. Which will actually be a story we will eventually get to. Turkey won't have a huge role in our narrative, but I'll be checking in on them every now and again as the major nations surrounding them greatly desire their friendship in the years to come. So that was it, the Paris Peace Conference. It is the springboard of our narrative, a collection of leaders and nations climbing out from the abyss they had fallen into. The world had been torn asunder, and the old certainties were gone. The powers had briefly held together only because the failure to produce some settlement was not an option. That each of the central figures in the conference would be soon out of the picture did not bode well for the fresh start they created. Orlando was already out of office when the Treaty of Versailles was signed, brought down by the domestic chaos in Italy. Wilson will soon throw himself into selling the peace to the American people directly, touring coast-to-coast speaking. The strain of it would cause a stroke that would leave him bedridden for the rest of his presidency. Clemenceau would seek to transition from prime minister to president, which, in France at the time, was the last stop for an illustrious career. The enemies he made during that career, though, would block that and send him into an embittered early retirement. Lloyd George would hang on the longest, but ironically, for the best diplomat of the Big Four, the peace did not agree with his talents. When he eventually was sacked as Prime Minister, it was assumed a man so great would eventually see office again. Instead, he rode the backbenches, still a notable figure, but never again a powerful one. Their successors lacked the fragile camaraderie that the four had developed, and the diverging interests between the victors were not bridged in the years that followed. That, though, is a problem that will have to wait for another day, for now the basis of the new order has been created and most at the time did not take that for granted. It also wasn't as if the world leaders assumed they had reached final settlements, either. Quite the opposite. The compromise to decide on reparations further down the road wasn't the only lingering uh, piece of business set aside for another day. The 20s would see numerous conferences, ranging from topics like mundane trade agreements to major disarmament commitments. These conclaves would continue even into the 30s, although by that time they started taking on a more sinister edge as the eventual Axis powers focused on wringing as many concessions as they could without stopping their aggressions. In the 20s, though, the meetings were slightly more idealistic, although again, keep in mind, everybody is always looking out for number one in them. So, over the course of around six months, the last great power standing set up a commitment to universal liberal ideals and the creation of international mechanisms to bind the nations nations of the world together so that a fresh global war would not break out again. I think you've got a clear picture on where this conference came up short, namely in that it isolated nations like Germany and Russia from the start, making them outsiders looking in at the new liberal community it didn't the victors together so that eventually they started going their separate ways, which will be a recurring topic of the 20s section of this podcast. Probably the biggest disaster to undermine the peace wasn't the harsh terms imposed on the vanquished or the snubbing of several major countries. It was the fact that the U.S. Congress will reject the terms of the conference and make its own peace with the beaten Central Powers. In doing so, it will avoid any commitment to the new League of Nations or the collective peace that the conference sought to build. That isn't to say the U.S. makes a full retreat into isolationism as is usually re- uh, reported, but it does mean that in the realm of international engagement, the U.S. will not feel a great commitment to any particular ideal beyond its immediate interests. So, you might come away from these episodes with a poor opinion of the results of the peace conference. I don't really blame you. It ultimately wasn't a success by any means. I will offer some defense to the peacemakers, though, and point out that what they were attempting largely had not been tried before. For centuries, relations between states had operated purely on what was best for the nation who was in the good spot to dictate terms. The notion of a greater international community whose collective prosperity and access to universal rights uh, as its defining features might have been greeted with disdain or worries about a mental illness. This was all new, and nobody was really good at it then, and frankly, we're not very good at it now. As we get further along, we'll see that there were major accomplishments that admittedly do get subsumed by the much more major setbacks. So that wraps it up for the Paris Peace Conference. Next up will be another general episode, this time introducing a core topic of this period, the fascist ideology. Fitting that we're moving on to the very thing that tears what was accomplished in Paris to pieces. So, tune in next week, and as always, thank you for listening.